Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Light the fuse. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Uh, it's all got to do with the rabbit's foot. Please don't make me go through you. Sir, Hunt is the living manifestation of destiny, and he has made you his mission. Kittredge, you've never seen me very upset. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. Welcome to Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. I am Drew Taylor, joined once again by Charles Hood. How you feeling, Charles? I am good, Drew. I'm very good. I'm I'm great. Is it because we are unleashing an episode that we have been trying to get for literal years? Is that why you're feeling so good? Yeah, I think so. This was a big one that we we were we really wanted to make happen for years. For years we've been working on this, and so it's awesome to finally have it done and to have it so that everyone can hear it. And it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, w- w- yeah, we talked to Paula Wagner. Um, I mean, do you want to tell everybody, for anybody who doesn't know, I don't know how you wouldn't, but who Paula Wagner is? Absolutely, Charles. Paula Wagner was Tom Cruise's former agent and then producing partner in Cruise Wagner Productions. She also co-ran United Artists with Cruise during that little period. And so she's really been with him for so long, been through so many things. They are not currently uh, producing partners, but they both love each other still very much. And it was just amazing to get to talk to her and have her give us all these amazing anecdotes. Yeah. And, and she was a producer on the first three Mission Impossible movies and many other Tom Cruise movies at the time. That's right. But uh, yeah, so it's great to hear all these stories about Mission 1, 2, and 3 uh, in that whole era. So this is a real treat, which is a two-parter everybody's going to really love. Uh, yeah, can't wait for you to hear it. But uh, before we get into it, I did want to let everybody know that we did end up tracking down those Arthur Anderson photos of the uh, fake film shoot at the Vatican from that episode a few weeks ago. Uh, so those are on our website, lightfusepodcast.com. And uh, that's where we have show notes for all of our old episodes. You can see there and stuff. So anyway, it's uh, it go, that goes back to our old back catalog as well, which is awesome. So uh, yeah, I just wanted to let everybody know that. You, what did you think of the photos when you finally saw them? We, we heard that story for years about the fake shoot and there were nuns. We'd heard people like there were women in bikinis, which is not true. It looks like they were models, maybe. Yeah, I mean, those photos... To me, those are some of the the amazing things that we've gotten to see through the course of the show. I feel like seeing Paula Patton in her snowsuit was one of them. And then seeing these photos of the Vatican, fake Vatican shoot was another. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's just uh, it's amazing. And it's great that they're finally out there. So now anyone who tells this story in the future can reference those photos. Uh, And I believe they're also on our 
uh, Twitter slash X account, which is Light the Fuse Pod as well. So yes, follow us on social media. And just for anybody who doesn't know the, the reference to Paula Patton, she had uh, there was a the, the scene we're obsessed with at the beginning of Ghost Protocol that never got made was a snowmobile chase, uh, and she did costume tests. And when we had Michael Kaplan, the costume designer, on on uh, our old show, he showed us photos, and we had those. Those are on our website as well. So pretty awesome stuff. Just wanted to quickly bring that up. Uh, yeah. And Drew, I wanted to uh, bring up the uh, extended album again that's on uh, st- streaming now. And it's also available from La La Land Records uh, because it has tracks from our beloved Kevin Blumenfeld, who's done music for our show for years and music for my movies as well. Kevin is an amazingly talented composer and he worked under Lorne for a couple of years. And so I just wanted to bring that up. That extended album is so cool. Uh, the extended uh, Dead Reckoning Part One uh, soundtrack album with obviously all of Lauren's incredible music and it's just so surreal to me to see Kevin co-credited with Lauren on a couple of tracks it's just so awesome so cool so that is available right now and uh yeah what else Charles is that it do we need to get into it right now uh just before just wanted to set up to say to say that with Paula before we started recording with her uh we talked for a few minutes and I had mentioned that uh we had heard the story about Princess Diana visiting set uh which we heard about way back when, when we uh, interviewed Keith Campbell, who was uh, Tom's stunt double in the first two movies back in the days when Tom still had a stunt double. Uh, but so it, uh, just because we, we, you bring up the Princess Diana uh, story in the middle of the interview as if we had already talked about it. And that we just uh, brought it up before. Anyway, that's the, that old episode with Keith Campbell where he tells a story of Princess Diana visiting set, the first movie, when they were shooting the, the Langley heist scene and Tom was dangling from the ceiling and stuff. Anyway, just wanted to bring that context there for everybody. All right, great. Well, let's get into it now and then we'll be back afterwards. Yeah, let, let's take it back to the beginning and just how how you and Tom connected, how you connected over, I'm assuming, a love of the old Mission Impossible TV show. Tell us tell us how it started. Well, it we had just uh, started our company, Cruise Wagner Productions, and we were set up at Paramount. And Paramount had, you know, it's interesting, Paramount had IP. Now, that's not a term that was used in 1993, whenever we started this, 90, yeah, 93, actually. we That's very contemporary. But Paramount had the whole Mission Impossible series. And between CAA, Paramount, and really Tom's passion for this series. And as a kid, I would watch it. And, and the Paramount had a real interest. All of these people had an interest in helping us launch our company. So basically, I get a call from Tom. And I had a call I could see from Sherry Lansing and, and CAA and all. But I spoke to Tom and Tom said, we're going to do Mission Impossible. And uh, it's a TV series. Now, you know, television series really hadn't been done. It wasn't a common occurrence that television series had been done uh, and converted into films. It, or movies out of TV shows weren't really in favor, actually. When it suddenly got announced we were working on the Mission Impossible series, it didn't wasn't met with, a, oh, wow, of course. So it, we were like pioneers somewhat in this area. 
and Tom's incredible enthusiasm going back to that phone call, that fateful phone call. We're going to do Mission Impossible. And I said, great. And then we started talking. I said, you know, it's a team. It's all a team. And he said, we'll figure it out. We'll get a great, we'll get characters and, and we're, we're off and running. It's a little more complicated than I'm making it sound, of course. Anything <laughs> launching, any, any movie, as you know, is next to impossible. So this was an impossible task on many fronts. But, you know, also this was an origin. It was the origin and the original series was a Cold War series with a group of people that had disguises. They were, they'd wear masks in and you'd see them peeling their masks off and pulling fake mustaches when you look back at it. And, you know, invariably they were assigned an impossible task in which they had to get in and out of the situation undetected and onto the next. It was a lot of suspense. But now this is in the you know early mid '90s. What are the issues, and how do you turn this? We're in a different Cold War, if you will. It's not the same thing. That was very simplistic in that era, you know. And now suddenly, what are all the elements? And there was a lot of research that went into it. A lot of research, and um, that was the origin. I always thought of myself as a pioneer. Tom and I were both pioneers, really, in leading, you know, coming to this place of saying, we're going to create this movie. And the intent wasn't, it's a franchise, it will go on and on and on. The intent was, we're going to make a great movie. Well, obviously, uh, along the way to a great movie, there's often, you know, road bumps and false starts and things. And Charles and I are fascinated by the what Sidney Pollack uh, wanted to do. Do you remember what that version of the movie was like before De Palma came on board? Well, he hadn't really gone that far with it. There were a lot of ideas. At that point, I think Steve Zalian was going to come on. I know he came on and worked with Brian for a while. But the thing that was most prominent about Sidney Pollack's version was the love story. It was really important that there be a central, strong love story. That was very much a Sidney Pollack kind of element that he always put in his films. And so that that was very focused. Now, Brian De Palma, conversely, wanted a love story. But <laughs> as you can see from Mission One, it kind of, he liked to turn everything on its head and put it, you know, take you down a path you think you're going in one direction and flip it around on you, which is great. That's that. Those are elements that really resonate, I think, with Mission Impossible. Yeah. Can you talk about the decision to hire De Palma? Like who who thought of that or did you meet with anybody else um, before settling on Brian? In the process of making a movie, you guys know this as filmmakers, um, you consider, because your director really leads visually and creatively in terms of the tone of a film. It's the director's vision kind of interwoven into the fiber of what the story is and what the film is supposed to be is really crucial. And every great filmmaker has a different 
approach, a different style. So stylistic, we had to decide what is the style. And I think went down in terms of discussions, in terms of script ideas, in terms of you know what is this film? What are the what's the tone of it? What's the what are the elements that make it distinctly Mission Impossible? And Brian certainly had that. He's a master of suspense. Brian's known for the tension he can bring to films, and Mission Impossible had to have tension. Mm-hmm. And he he just had a different way of looking at a a very, you know, specific situation. Even his action scenes had twists and turns that were unexpected. And, you know, I certainly, I I knew him and I knew his work going all the way back to Greetings and Hi, Mom. Do you remember those movies? Of course. And I had met him. And ironically, I had represented Nancy Allen for a time when I, I was an agent at CAA. So, oh, wow. And, and Tom met him. Tom met him. And so it just, it was one of those things that was synergistic, you know, it all, mm-hmm. all the elements made sense. And thus, Brian De Palma. Well, it was a great choice, whoever made it. <laughs> uh, we love him so much. We'll be back with more from Paulo Agner after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you want to talk about what it was like working with Brian? Very good. Okay. It was a very good experience. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he was uh, devoted, dedicated. I think there were times he actually stayed in his office working out, doing a previs of all the action and the dynamics, you know, the whole, that whole sequence where Tom is hanging upside down in the CIA. There's a, a lot of details. Every element of that relies on the, the setup. You know, you've got to set everything up and then pay it off. And he worked tirelessly on every single detail. And then, of course, there are all the issues when you go to shooting. But he worked on that. He worked on, um, worked on the script. He and uh, David Kep, and we had Robert Town, as you know, yeah. And there was a real amazing, really fantastically talented group of people supporting this. And he was 
totally professional, totally focused. I mean, really focused on the set at all times. A pro and talented and meticulous. Love that. Uh, should we talk about the, the shot of Tom hanging from the ceiling? It's oh, the yeah. the most iconic <laughs> moment. Uh, it is. As, as Charles noted, uh, Princess Diana stopped by that day. What, what other, what other, um, you know, I, fun. I don't know that it was that day. Oh, okay. That I don't know. I, I know I'm as she did come by, but as, as a producer, I, I have to be very focused, mm-hmm. you know, once we get into production, you know, as producers, it's a matter of. You know, are we making our day? Make sure everything's going smoothly. The cast feels embraced and cared for. The crew is focused. Every you know, you have there's a lot of responsibilities. We were shooting at Pinewood, so I was very focused on, you know, the and particularly these kind of this sequence was one for me as a producer that was really that was challenging in that there are safety issues involved. And when you have safety, that has to be the first priority, mm-hmm. um, you know, to make sure that, that, that everything about this is going to go smoothly. And we were in hands of very good people and, you know, we have great stunt people and all, but Tom did it and it was pretty phenomenal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He did. <laughs> he did that. And, it was um, it was suspense on like walking on a high wire I- internally for me. I'm like, I, you know, I'm I'm kind of living every moment of this thing happening. <laughs> and there were some really close calls with Tom. And he just, you know, hanging up. Can you imagine hanging upside down? <laughs> For a period of time. Yeah. I've, you see some of the behind the scenes footage where he's he's sort of dropped and kind of, you know, yeah. he's supposed to drop and not hit the ground. But there's some footage yeah. where you see behind the scenes where he hit the ground a couple of times. Uh, uh, well, yeah, almost. But had he with, you know, if you see the sequence where he's being lowered down really fast. Yeah. I mean, that that had potential. This stunt is a, a lot more dangerous than you one might imagine. I mean, and then there were all kinds of things that he had to do to keep his balance. It was balance and the movement and the precision timing. Yeah. We've heard the story about the coins in his shoes to balance it. Coins in his shoes. Right. (laughs) That was his idea, too, because he's so... So meticulous about the work that he does and and really a consummate professional, I have to say, and on set, amazing. That's awesome. What did you think when you saw the the sequence and there was no music and it was just just stillness? It's great. I mean, I thought, <laughs> what more can you say? You're yeah. awestruck. I mean, it's pretty bold. You know, a lot of movies, you know, I, I can't think of a lot of movies that would do that to do. It's a, it's like almost nine minutes of silence. We always talk about that. It's really amazing. Well, so, you know, this is the thing that's interesting about De Palma and and Tom. And when you're really work, when you're working with artists like this, is that they're always 
they're always thinking from a unique perspective. What mm. can we do that is different, that isn't, you know, everybody's doing this. And at this period of in time, all the action films were, um, there was loud, right? Explosions every five minutes, big sound, big, big. And the idea here was to go against the grain. So if all the big sequence, this is a major, um, a major sequence in the film. And if all, if all the films coming out have their big sequence, loud, pumped up volume, you know, all the sound, cars screeching, tires and things happening. How about pure silence? Hmm. How about going to just absolute silence and putting him into a room putting him in a situation that a, one sound, he was risking his everything, his life, the mission, the whole thing could blow up with one sound. That's a great challenge. That's a great, you know, and it's simple and it's visual. And I think that was one of the things that was so exciting about it is that it, it was so, sometimes the most complex scenes are the simplest mm. you know and i like the sim I, I love the simplicity of this and um where you you know that think about that moment where you the bead of sweat slowly rolling down tom's cheek yeah. and you know if it's going and it's just about to drop and it drops it, as it begins to drop you see the guy coming closer and closer and then he catches it. It's, I mean, it's details like that, that make, that set up the tension. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. uh it's an amazing sequence. Producing this movie for us was our, this was our first movie. And whereas we both Tom and I brought our professionalism from, I had been an agent for many years at CAA and he, you know, Tom Cruise and we bring that, but some, at the same time, a lot there was elements of trial by fire. You know, <laughs> when you go into something, you're like, "I can do this. We will do this. We will go for it." But it had its, you know, it had its challenges. Making any movie does, but certainly a movie of this size and a movie that was somewhat unique in that large studio films, not as many had been done in this nature. You know, there really weren't the franchises, the kind of franchises, James Bond and a few others. But it was it was carving a path in new territory. Well, you brought up, you know, it, it is based on an IP. When did you start thinking about the sequel and, and how did those talks initially start? Was it, you know, William Goldman or Robert Town, or who who did you talk to when you were first thinking about doing another one? Uh, well, of course, Robert Town worked with us on, you know, most of many of the things that we did, and I I had been Robert Town's agent actually at Creative Artists Agency prior to this, and Tom had worked with him. So I think I, I think once we realized that the movie the movie worked, you know. The audience tells you, and we, you can never forget your audience as a filmmaker. And once we got that sense and the studio was happy with it and audiences 
really liked it a lot. I mean, there was a great response. We were doing really very strong business. It was carving out a new path in terms of international. Um, there were a lot of things being done to make this. One of the goals was to make this a, a real international film with the cast, with the locations, that the world was opening up to films in, in 1996. So this was the beginning of the international franchise-type film. And Tom, of course, really originated so in so many ways. The star, the producer, going to all the individual territories. So the film was really marketed by territory by territory, you know, in Rome and Paris and, you know, Tokyo, all over the world, you know, creating this this excitement to see Mission Impossible. So once we were there, and I think I remember we were in Paris, I guess, and the film had screened and it was very successful. So we made the decision and always with, with Sherry Lansing, who was certainly leading the charge at, at Paramount and her team, really a good group of people that we worked with. And the, they said, let's, let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's do a second one. Because at this point, we put all our focus on let's make the best movie we can make and fulfill what this what Mission Impossible wants to be. And at the same time of all the suspense and all the action, what's really critical is the character of Ethan Hunt. And that was, you know, that was Tom and the writers, Robert and David and working with Brian and really developing this character, which has continued to do over a long run of a, of a franchise. We'll be back with more from Paula Wagner after the break. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Rise and shine, football fans. Start your day the right way with Morning Footy, a podcast that covers every aspect of the global game, headlines, match previews, analysis, interviews, culture, fashion, and plenty of banter. Join as we track the thrills and spills of Europe's biggest title races, the business end of the Champions League season, a summer packed with international competitions, MLS, NWSL, and much more. Subscribe to Morning Footy. How hard did you try to get De Palma to come back? We did. We wanted him to come back very much. He didn't want it. That was his choice. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted him to, of course. Did you add a couple of zeros to his, you know, fee or what? Well, I, mean, I didn't I, do. I, I mean, <laughs> come on. I didn't. I'm not the one that adds the zeros. That's the that's the beauty of doing a studio movie. That's the studio's job. 
<laughs> I whatever it took, but I think that was that's that was Brian. Yeah, right. But of course, we wanted him to come back. We've actually uh, done a lot of research about the Oliver Stone version of Mission Impossible 2. Yes. Uh, we dug up a script and read about it. And so, you know, obviously Oliver had worked with Tom before. Um, what was it like bringing him on to Mission Impossible 2? Well, you, you know, also, I had been his agent at Creative Artists Agency. Uh, so Stone? I knew Oliver. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Born on the 4th of July. I... When did I sign him? Right. Helped him cast Platoon. And then right after, signed him right in that area. And then born on the 4th of July. As you know, Oliver won the Academy Award. Yeah. It was an amazing film. Tom was fantastic. And I worked very closely with him as his agent. And so... We talked about filmmakers and somehow Oliver and Tom had a very good experience working with him on Bourne. And it made sense. And because sometimes making choices that aren't, you know, aren't the tried and true in, in the genre, say, trying a different genre, that can work in a great way. It wasn't the obvious choice. But, you know, I think ultimately... Uh, yes, and we worked with him, but I think ultimately he wasn't comfortable in in this with the material, with this particular specific genre. I think it was just not in his comfort zone, which is fine. Yeah, and he's a great filmmaker. Yeah, you know, and that that's fine. Well, so tell us about bringing on John Woo and 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 what it was like working with him and how different that was. Well, John Woo had, you know, you know, his background and his approach to action. And, you know, he had this almost a stylistic, almost ballet like view of his action sequences. They weren't really hyper realistic. They were very stylistic, almost a little operatic quality to the characters and a ballet-like sensibility. And it was very interesting. And I think he had just come out with a movie at Paramount, Face Off. And ironically, I had met with him on something else we were talking about. Tom knew of his work. And again, it was just all, all these, this idea of let's think about it. What do you think? And, you know, going to him with the material and it made sense. And he, he was very enthusiastic and came aboard and we continued to develop the script. The script evolved. We had a number of different writers. Yes. William Goldman, by the way, early on, right after, right at the beginning of the mission Two journey, uh, wrote wrote a portion of it, but I, he had to withdraw because I think he had a back problem or something. There was an issue that he couldn't finish it, but he did come on board. And he's a great writer, of course. Yeah. So, so John Woo, and now we continue to develop the script. Charles, how you feeling after Paula Wagner Part One? It's in the books. It feels good. 
Yeah, it feels really good. Don't you think? I mean, I, this is just like we've been building towards this and, and we've wanted to get this interview for so long. Yes. And she was very gracious with her time, with her stories. And we've talked to her a couple of times since. And she is just a lovely human being and so kind to us. So, yes, we really appreciate that. It's so nice. Yeah. And she was so curious about us and like why, what, you know, like how we got into this and what we you know, everything about our whole operation doing Light the Fuse for years. But uh, so, yeah, we will, of course, pick up next week with John Woo's Mission Impossible 2. She'll get into that. She'll also get into JJ's Mission Impossible 3, of course. We'll talk about all those things. Um, I wanted to just talk about a few things in this. I mean, it was cool to hear or interesting to hear. I don't know that the uh, romance was an important part of the Sidney Pollock version. I could see that. That totally tracks. It tracks. Oh, you mean like with, with, with Pollock's filmography? Or? Yeah, within his filmography, yeah, that he would want to yeah. make it a little bit more romantic. I think he made Sabrina around the same time. I think that was 94. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. I think he yeah. might have I think somewhere along the way someone he chose Sabrina I think, over this. I think someone said that he chose Sabrina over Mission Impossible. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. That movie really sucks too. He made it <laughs> he made a bad choice, but it's Come another on, great par- it's a it's a Paramount movie. I'm sure it's on Paramount Plus. So if you want to watch Sabrina, the movie that he did instead of Mission Impossible, you can do that. Um Well anyway, yeah, I, you know, actually I don't know if I've ever actually seen the Sabrina remake. I've only seen the original, which is a classic and it's amazing. And uh yeah, at some point I'll watch the Sydney Pollock version. I bet it's better than you remember. Probably, probably. You know what? It's probably better <laughs> in the sense that it was a movie, big budget movie with movie stars that was made for an adult audience. Back, yes. Uh in the early nineties. Yeah, that yeah, it would that's be really enough. refreshing to see now. Yes. Um but uh yeah, also, you know, the great William Goldman started on MI two. Hearing about that briefly, um, that's, I mean, that's crazy. That, that, like, it's just amazing the uh, the level of talent that this series has had as screen as screenwriter. Even even the incomplete versions, the ones that didn't get made or whatever. You have William Goldman writing the first version of Mission Impossible Two. That is insane. And for anyone who doesn't know who William Goldman is, Drew, go ahead. I'm putting it on you. Well, again. okay. <laughs> Are you putting it on me again? He is yeah. a famous novelist and screenwriter whose credits include Marathon Man and. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Princess Bride and a thousand other things that you love. He also wrote a bunch of nonfiction books that people still quote literally all the time. I think a trade quotes, you know, nobody knows anything like once a week still. Yes. Uh, Adventures in the screen trade. Um, yes. And a, and oh, a, and a yeah. sequel. Yeah. So he is just a, a luminary. But Charles, I, I think that it's not just screenwriters. It's like every single department. Yeah, had the best in class working on these movies yeah. from the beginning, and it's something that they continue through to today, which is so fascinating. Yeah, uh, on the new movies, so yeah, I mean, you got to just be at that level, and that starts with Cruz and and Paula Wagner, like find, finding the the best of the best and bringing them onto these projects, and so that's just it's just so cool. Yes, to uh, to talk to her about it, and I mean, it's also like the the various like talents that she represented as an agent is so insane. Like she'll just drop like, Oh yeah, I represented Robert town. And just like, you know, just like her, like mentioning these people that is like, Oh my gosh, like her whole career before she was a producer, when she was an agent, I mean, we could just interview her about that whole time because of the, yeah. the, the people that she was represented is crazy. Well, it's a great, it's a great person to have as a producer, especially a first time producer, right. Who can literally call anybody in town and have them help out. It's pretty, 
it's a pretty great asset. Yeah. And she was just, you know, she does still know everybody in town. She knew, she knows my boss. She knew everybody. So it's like, it's really cool that uh, she still has all those connections. So yeah, I, I was just so impressed with her and uh, the stories she told. It was really, it was really special to get to talk to her. Hopefully we'll do it again. Yeah. And I think it can't really be overstated either. Like how, like I, I wish we'd talked to her about also, like she's like an important figure. I feel like because she was a big time female producer in a, in a very different time. I mean, like I'm, I was trying to think of other people that was like in that kind of same, uh, you know, level. It's like Gail Ann Hurd and Deborah Hill come to mind, you know, making kind of some of those big budget action type movies, but they were also writers. So it was like a different, I don't know. I, yeah. I don't know if you had any thought about that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you do hear sometimes about like it on the, the actual studio level, you know, with people like Sherry Lansing, who we absolutely yes. adore. But yeah, you're right. Like uh, Linda Orps, you know, she was probably working around that same time too. And but there weren't many. You're right. Absolutely, there were not many. And and for her to not only be a female producer in this time, but also a female producer on a male-driven action franchise is really interesting as well. Yeah. And uh, yeah, just amazing that she was able to do all of that and to do it somewhat autonomously, you know, with the, with Tom, it's just amazing. I yeah. think it's just great. A real trailblazer. It's awesome. So great to have her on the show. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, come back next week because we, we, of course, get into MI2 and MI3 and uh, have plenty of great uh, stories to share with you. So uh, we should encourage everybody to, what should we encourage everybody to do, Drew? This is, you, you you take over here. Come okay, on. Okay, well, let me tell you. First thing I would encourage everybody to watch the first six mission movies on Paramount+. Plus. That's one. Okay, check that off. Then I also want to encourage people to buy Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning either on digital or DVD, Blu-ray, or 4K Ultra HD disc. Okay, so that's another thing I really encourage okay. people to do. Check. I want to encourage people to like, subscribe, rate, and review this show wherever they're listening to their podcast. So that's something that you could do. Check, uh, check, okay, check, check. You got that? Okay. Yep. The next thing is- Good reviews. Only good, good reviews. reviews. Only good reviews if you could. Yeah, if yeah. you don't like the show, just don't even bother. So the other thing I, I would encourage people to do is follow us on social media at Light the Fuse Pod, Check. which is on- Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Check, check, check. And, okay, you got that checked out? Okay. Um, and then the other thing, the maybe the most important thing, is to come back next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Light the Fuse with Paula Wagner, again, with all these amazing stories. And yes, we try to get details about Fincher's version of Mission Impossible 3. Oh, it doesn't, yes, It doesn't do. go right. yeah. quite as planned, but you should listen to it. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> but no, there's um, great insights about it, and yeah, 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 very cool. Yeah, I think that's it for us, right? Or do you have anything that you want to remind people of? Uh, I just want to, I just want to uh, remind people to come back, just like you said. That's it. Okay. Yeah. Thank you that's all. Thank you so easy much. Easy enough. All right, we'll be back next week. Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast, is produced by Charles Hood. That's me and Drew Taylor. Our supervising producer is Abby Smith. This episode was edited by Luke Burson with music by Kevin Blumenfeld. Original Mission Impossible themes by Lalo Schifrin. This podcast is a production of Paramount Pictures. All rights are reserved. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. 